Hey, Cracked fans. If you're a listener of this podcast, I imagine you feel fairly similar to how I do about the latest clothing options made available across the tennis market. Now, while I won't call out any brand in particular, I will say this. Given the exorbitant nature of the latest designs, feels like you better be pretty freaking good at tennis if you want to wear that sort of clothing on the court. Now, thankfully, we here at Crack Rackets are now able to provide a far more suitable, far more comfortable, and I'm going to be honest, far more stylish option for all of our Crack Rackets fans, courtesy of our friends over at Lucky Racket. Lucky Racket uses some of the best fitting and feeling tees in the world. Their shirts are combed, ring-spun, heirloom cotton, and tri-blend Bella and Canvas. I don't even know what that means, but that sounds spectacular. So, how can you get yourself some Lucky Racket gear? It's simple. Just go to their website, luckyracket.com, that's L-U-C-K-Y-R-A-C-K-E-T.com, and use our promo code CRACK15. If you do, you'll get 15% off all of your purchases. That means 15% off the shirts, 15% off all of the incredible swag offered by our friends. Again, that's luckyracket.com. The promo code is CRACK15. Your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, October 4th. Feels like I say this at the start of every week, but folks, it was another fantastic weekend of championship action across the tennis world. Of course, it's worth noting, it's the first weekend of October, and despite that fact, we see four tour-level events on the calendar, a WTA 500 over in Chicago, a WTA 250 in Nur Sultan, two ATP 250s that it's worth mentioning featured high quality fields across the board, particularly for post-U.S. Open 250 events. You had that action over in San Diego and Sofia. We had five ATP challengers, three stateside ITF events, four ITF events in total featuring a plethora of both former and current collegiate stars. Just really, really fun weekend to follow all of the action. And of course, what I want to do on today's podcast, recap it all. For all of you listeners, so you feel prepped heading into a Masters 1000-1000 level event over in Indian Wells starting on Thursday. I do want to mention here at the start of today's podcast, we'll be previewing Indian Wells over on our Great Shot podcast feed on Tuesday. We're talking race to Guadalajara. We're also talking Chicago's place in the broader WTA calendar with Tennis Channel and Tennis.com editorial producer David Kane. We're talking most interesting ATP players to watch on Wednesday heading into Indian Wells with first-time guest Amy Lundy. Really, really fun week of podcast planned for all of you listeners. Of course, it's nice to have a couple of days to, you know, rest, reflect, offer some, I suppose, big-picture thoughts given we've got a couple of days before Indian Wells starts. Of course, there are still challengers throughout the course of this week. I'll talk about all of this week's action on tomorrow's mini-break podcast, but again, today, want to recap Championship Week 
again set the scene, uh, or uh, excuse me, recap what we just saw over another uh, fantastic weekend of tennis. Of course, before I do any of that, I do want to remind all of you listeners that the reason we're able to do this day in, day out is because of the support we get from all of you, because of the support we get from our Patreon family, who, by the way, are going to be getting matches of the day segments each and every day throughout the 2021 Indian Wells. If you're looking for a little extra bonus preview content, you can join our Crack Rackets Patreon family today by going to our website, crackrackets.com. You can learn more while you are there. Of course, as always, have to give a shout out to our friends at Tennis Point who have been with this mini break podcast from the beginning, even dating back to their Midwest sports days. Of course, now they go by Tennis Point, and all of you listeners know, for the best equipment at the best prices, just go to their website, tennis-point.com. Shoes, socks, shorts, long-sleeve shirts, of course, as the seasons change, whatever it may be, rackets, strings, tennis balls, you name it, they've got it. Fantastic staff that can help guide you in the right direction as well. Of course, if you use our promo code CR15 at checkout, you'll get 15% off your order. Free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Look, don't let your gear be the excuse. Don't say, well, I haven't updated my shoes in a while. Well, I really need to restring my racket. All of that available to you at prices that are super, super reasonable with our friends at Tennis Point. Tennis-Point, the symbol, not the spelling. Tennis-Point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, let's get into this weekend's action. I should say this past weekend's action and let's start with the WTA 500 in Chicago was our highest level event last week across men's and women's professional tennis and it's an event that saw Garbine Muguruza capture the ninth WTA level title of her career first at the 500 level she does it by earning a 3-6-6-3-6 love win over Onjabur in the final you look for Garbine Muguruza it has truly been I would say the best season of her career from start to finish here in 2021. Now, of course, you look for Muguruza. She has not won a Grand Slam title this year, and she's won two Grand Slam titles in her career. And shout out to the fact, in those nine titles she's won, seven of the nine have been on hard courts. The other two are the French Open and the Wimbledon titles that she's won in her career. Of course, Garbine is one of October's very own as well. She's got a birthday coming up October 8th, worth, I suppose, noting for Garbine Muguruza fans out there. But you look for Muguruza now overall here in 2021. She's 30-7 and and 14 on the season. That's a 73% win percentage. That's the second best of her career. But, of course, the best number of her career came in 2020. It was only 31 matches. She went 23-8 and in those 31. Point being, these past two seasons have been the prime of Garbine Muguruza's career, and I think the numbers reflect that fact. You look this season, her hold percentage, 74.8. It's a career high for her. Her break percentage, 43.7. It's a career high for her. She's the only player on the WTA Tour right now to rank top 10 in both hold and break percentage. She's into the top 10 of the WTA rankings, up to number 5 right now in the live rankings. Uh, She's number 6 right now in the WTA rankings, though. That is her highest number since July of 2018. And of course, for Garbine Muguruza, she's had a bunch of different health struggles throughout the course of her career. 
this season outside of her injury she sustained in Charleston, and that really robbed her of her clay court season, of what could have been a potentially very successful clay court season because, of course, we saw Barbara Krejcikova end up capturing the French Open title, but, you know, I think it was, what, eight first-time quarterfinalists or something crazy like that, seven first-time quarterfinalists, four first-time semifinalists at the 2021 French Open. You just feel like that was an opportunity missed for Garbine Muguruza, and she's had a season full of what-ifs, and that's something I explore on the Great Shot podcast on Tuesday with David Kane. But you look at the record for Garbine Muguruza here this season amongst that 37-14 and 14 record. She's made four different finals, all of them coming on hard courts. You look at uh, you know, the 2-2 two and two record in those finals. She's lost matches to Ashley Barty and Petra Kvitova. She's knocked out now Krejcikova and Own Jabour in her finals. You look for her overall on the season against top 50 opponents. She's 17-11 and 11. against the top 20 now. She's 7-8 and eight. against the top 10. She's 3-7, and seven, but it's worth noting of that 3-7 and seven record, record. You know, one of them was a three-set loss to Naomi Osaka at the Australian Open. Of course, Osaka went on to win the event, but perhaps even more notably, Garbine Muguruza had match points in that matchup. She loses in three sets to Bianca Andreescu, three sets to Krejcikova in Cincinnati, the loss at the U.S. Open to Krejcikova. What happened in that match? The world may never know. So, even though that 3-7 and seven record doesn't sound extraordinary, she's played everyone close throughout the course of this season. And again, you look overall, 14 losses for her on the year. You look at those 14 losses specifically, how many of them have come in three sets? Well, overall on the season, she's lost six different uh, three-set matches of those 14 matches. So even when she's losing, she's playing matches closely. And again, you've had to be the best of the best to beat Garbine Muguruza this season. It's worth noting that seven of her 14 losses, half of them have come against top 10 opponents. But what was so impressive about Garbine Muguruza in her performance in the final against Jabour were the adjustments she made because Jabour came out swinging. And of course, for Own Jabour, who is your wins leader on the WTA Tour this season with 43, I believe, wins now, uh, she came out absolutely firing in Chicago and it was so exciting and honestly made the match that much more fun to see the pro-Tunisian crowd and if you're ever wondering well why do you host an event in Chicago a what is it it's Chicago New York Los Angeles Miami those are the big four cities right now in the United States I'm sure there are someone in Texas saying don't forget about Dallas and don't forget about Washington DC Boston in the mix but Chicago is in that top tier level of terms of U.S. cities, one of the biggest markets in the country, one of the biggest cities, most diverse cities in the country. And as such, you're going to have a pocket of Tunisian fans who are able to come out and support Onjupur and create a rowdy home environment. And, you know, again, I apologize because you're going to hear me repeat myself if you're a Great Shot Podcast listener, but there's a place in the WTA ecosystem for Chicago to be able to host a 125, a 250, and a 500 all in the same year. You see just the buy-in from these players at the 125K, Tossin knocked out Radakanu in the final, and you had players like Claire, just a bunch of fun, Claire Lou, a bunch of fun names to monitor at a 125K worth 
attending that event. Of course, the pre-U.S. Open 250 in Chicago was won by Alina freaking Svitolina. Uh, the 500 level, you saw a bunch of players fly in over from Ostrava to play this event consecutively, and you saw eight players in the top 20 of the points race all competing in a post-U.S. Open 500 level event. Shout out to Chicago. They killed it. And again, it was a really fun environment in the final, and Own Jabor came out swinging. The drop shot, I, I tweeted this out, is the drop shot back? It just might be. The way Own Jabour hits it, I challenge anyone of you listeners who plays the game frequently, go try and hit drop shot returns against any opponent. Own Jabour is able to do it against top 10 players in the freaking world. And just that's a testament to, again, her hand. Some people are just meant to have a tennis racket in them. She is one of them. Her ability to create in the outer thirds of the court, create short angles, beat you down the line, just keep you guessing because she owns every shot in the book. And you never know what you're going to get from Own Jabour. Of course, she is one of four players to be top 15 on the WTA Tour in both hold and break percentage. I already mentioned the fact she leads the tour right now in victories on the year you look for own Shabur overall now uh here i believe she's something like 43 i want to say in 19 in total 44 and 17 excuse me here in 2021 uh she was just confident and she came out swinging and honestly she was exceptional all tournament long you look for her wins over just pagula svitolina and rabacana to get just to the final and Look, I mean, again, she was up 6-3, and then she breaks Muguruza to start the second set to go up one love, and then Muguruza rips off two games, felt like she had found her rhythm, but nope, Jabour gets the break right back, she holds again to take a 3-2 lead, uh, I believe actually it was she broke, then held for 2-all, to and then broke right again to take a 3-2 lead, and she's up a set and a break, she's up a set and 3-2, and it just felt like, again, everything was working for her, whenever Muguruza would try to extend her to the outer third, Jabour would find a passing shot down the line. She'd hit a ball behind Muguruza. She'd mix in a drop shot. She just, you know, again, was beating Muguruza in every facet of the game. And then Muguruza made the adjustment of adjustments. And it's going to be fascinating to see if more top-level players start playing Jabour in this fashion. Muguruza started playing down the center of the court, just hitting with depth and hitting with increased pace and just, you know, thinking that if I can get enough balls deep down the center eventually because Own Jabour will leave a rally ball short or if she misses her attempt to go for a short angle, it will sit short in the court for you to attack. And Muguruza just upped her patience and she upped her first serve percentage and she just started playing, you know, being more aggressive on her second serve return. She started moving forward more and playing swinging volleys off of the Jabour slice as opposed to letting that ball bounce and allowing Jabour more time to reset herself, get back to the center of the court. It was a brilliant adjustment by Garbine Muguruza and you look for her, again, the numbers in this match. Muguruza played solid from across the board, made 68% of her first serves, won 66% of those points, 50% of her second serve points, perhaps most impressively, she won 79% of her second serve return points. Own Jabour, 5 of 24 on second serve points, 35 of 71 on service points in the match, that's under 50%. And again, Garbine, don't be so rude, earning the bagel in the third set over Jabour and just 
it feels like she had solved the riddle, and it feels like she had withstood everything that Jabour could throw at her because, again, the first hour of this match, Jabour was flawless. She was coming up with the short angles, the drop shots, the down the lines, and I will continue to stand by the fact that I think Own Jabour is a deceptively good mover, doesn't get enough credit for just her first step and her anticipation skills, but credit to Garbine, who said enough of the fluff. Let's play some tennis, and just I bet you cannot beat me and my ground strokes if I continue to go down the center and I force you to create, and I force you to try and find angles when they aren't obviously there, and again, credit to Muguruza. It broke Jabour's game down. After going down at 6-3-3-2, she doesn't drop another game. She rips off 10 straight to earn, once again, her seventh title of the season, and you know, you look for Garbine Muguruza, 27 years old. I mentioned it, number five right now in the WTA live ranking. She's currently sixth in the race to the year-end finals, and that is a topic David and I explore quite in depth. But Muguruza's pretty set. I mean, she's got about a 500-point lead. I believe it's 400, let's see, minus 44, 456-point uh, lead over uh, now seventh or technically seventh place own Jabor and I say technically seventh place because I'm pretty sure Ashley Barty and Naomi Osaka are not going to be playing in Guadalajara Muguruza's sixth even if you include them you take out Barty she moves up to fifth and again I know Indian Wells is still on the board but I don't think Muguruza is going to lose first round because you look for Muguruza she only played three matches on her way to the title. Now, they were three good matches, and you look for her, you know, over the course of last week, she gets wins uh, overall over uh, Onjabur, over Ann Lee, which I thought was a really good win in round one. She got the qualifier Mai Hantama in the quarterfinals, withdraws from Vandrusova and Vika. But again, the confidence boosting come from a set behind win over Own Jabour in the final three matches over the course of the week isn't that much on her body. She enters Indian Wells fresh, so I'm expecting success from her at that event. And again, she's pretty much clinched her spot already in the tour finals. Fantastic week for Garbine Muguruza, as I mentioned, ninth title of her career as she now uh takes the title, excuse me, in Chicago. You look for Own Jabour, just again, some final thoughts on where she is at. Career highs for her in hold percentage and break percentage. You look now in the live ranking, Own Jabour up to a new career high of number 12. You look for Jabour in the race, as I mentioned, when you take out Barty, when you take out Osaka, she moves up to 7th in the race, she's got about a 200, I believe, and 47-point lead over 8th place Elisa Mertens, about a 300-plus point lead over everyone else, 9 through about 17. And honestly, there are still about 17 people in contention for uh, the spots in the year-end finals. Jabour's not 100% safe because, again, when you're up by fewer than 200 points over Mertens, up by fewer than, you know, 300 points over the next tier of contenders as well, let's say she does get upset early in uh, Indian Wells. And it's worth mentioning for Own Shabur, I don't think she's ever played in Indian Wells main draw in her career. And in fact, when you look at the event for her, uh, she has, uh, let's see, Indian Wells, Own Shabur in her career. She has played the main draw two times. 2015, she got in through qualifying, beat Kanepi, lost number four seed Caroline Wozniacki. She also played 2019, lost first round to qualifier Masaki Doi. Obviously, it's a brand new, 
Own Jabour since then. And again, new career high for her. She's number 12 in the rankings, top 10 in the points race. That's where she belongs this season. She has won her first WTA title. She has been one of the most consistent players week in, week out throughout the course of the year. You look for her overall. I mentioned that 44 and 17 in total. You look at it uh, by the splits in terms of her ranking against top 50 opponents. She's 17 and 12 against top 20 opponents. She's 7 and 8 against top 10. She's five and five. She's been good against every sort of opponent. And again, for her in total on the year, six different quarterfinals. She made the Wimbledon quarterfinal first for her at a slam in her career. A bunch of firsts for Own Jabour. I do think she's one of the favorites to add first year-end finals appearance to her resume as well. And honestly, given how excellent she's been across the board, that's where Own Jabour deserves to be. A fantastic week of tennis for her in Chicago. And again, uh, certainly someone who can do damage as we look towards Indian Wells. But that was your final in Chicago. You look at the semifinals, it was certainly a funky weekend as you got a withdrawal from Marketa Von Drusva, who says and tweets out she had food poisoning, just not able to play. Of course, she's got Indian Wells on the horizon as well, but for Von Drusova, what an outstanding week. Victories over Tom Janovic, Pavlachenkova, Teichman, and Danielle Collins. You look for Marketa Von Drusova. I believe she's now 20-9 and since the end of the French Open and obviously earned that silver medal uh, over at Wimbledon. Now makes a semifinal here. I believe it was a semifinal for her over in Ostrava as well. The lefties game is just It's an outlier. Again, her consistency, her ability to incorporate the backhand drop shot, her speed across the court. Super, super impressed by Marketa Von Drusova's growth here this season. And it's worth remembering, only 22 years old. She's back up to number 34 in the live rankings. You look in the points race, Marketa Von Drusova here on this season. Also 34th. Nice to see those two numbers start to get closer together. You look at the advanced metrics for Marketa Von Drusova, 26th in terms of overall ELO with her 27-17 and 17 record here this season. She's now 18th in 2021 specific ELO. I do think it's worth mentioning, though, for Marketa Von Drusova, a career high for her in hold percentage, 70.1%. Now, the 37.4 break percentage is lower than she's been in her career, but she's back over 40% uh, since the end of the French Open. Again, 22 years old, she's playing some really good ball, is Marketa Von Drusova, so that was certainly a noticeable uh, continued noticeable run for her uh, over the weekend in Chicago. Unfortunately, she just had to pull out with the injury, uh, with the food poisoning. Of course, was another great week for Elena Rabakina, who continues her ascension up the WTA rankings. Rabakina now up to a new career high, number sixteen in the live rankings. You look for Rabakina in terms of the race to the year-end finals. She's twenty-third. You look for that number about six hundred points behind Elisa Mertens and. You know, again, there are 13 players separating Mertens and Rabakina from that final spot. So Rabakina would have to outperform all of them at Indian Wells. But is a title run in the cards for Elena Rabakina? I'm not going to say yes. I will say this. When she serves well, she can beat anyone. And for her, wins over Sasnovich, Kudermatova, Bencic on the week. Obviously had to, unfortunately, withdraw in that final against Jabour. Hopefully she'll be fine heading into Indian Wells. 
20, you know, the back half of 2021 was a step forward for Rabakan, and she's going to be a lot of people's sleeper pick at the Australian Open in 2022. She shouldn't be a sleeper. I don't think she should sneak up on any of us anymore. Uh, outstanding weekend for her, another semifinal at a high-level event. Uh, Rabakana makes the semifinals here, of course. I mentioned those quarterfinalists. Fidelina, she is right in position to make the year-end finals, and she's defending semifinal points this year at Indian Wells. And, of course, a slow, hard court. You feel like that's going to fit her game, suit her game so well. Uh, but she looked gassed in that quarterfinal against Jabour, and Jabour's just variety in her shot-making. She just didn't have a weapon to hurt Jabour with, and it felt like that match was on Jabour's terms. It was so fascinating to see Svitolina race out to a 4-1 lead, and then, you know, Jabour wins 11 of the next 12 games. So, Tough weekend for, uh, or tough ending for Alina Svitolina, but she has played so much better down the home stretch of this season. Ditto for Belinda Bencic, who's been exceptional since the start of the grass court season. I think it's something like 22-7 and seven now. Uh, you look for her again, wins over Inglis, Martin Sova, before having to retire. She kind of stumbled, hurt her knee. Seems like she could have played through that if she wanted to, but with Indian Wells on the horizon, why do that? And of course, Bencic defending semifinal points at this year's Indian Wells. She's currently 8th in the live rankings. Currently, I believe that uh, you look for Bencic in the race of the year in finals, 17th. So she's very much in the mix. Only trails Elisa uh, Mertens by fewer than 300 points. I mean, yeah, there's absolutely a world where she qualifies for the year-end finals. And, of course, a slow, hard court that gives her a little extra time to track down that ball. Her power is going to hit through any court. We've seen her have success on the surface before. She's confident right now. She's played a ton of tennis of late, but, you know, gets a full week off really before the start of Indian Wells. I think she's super dangerous. And, you know, again, that she's that she has semifinal points to defend, but has sort of salvaged that by playing Ostrava, by playing Luxembourg with her run, you know, quarterfinals of both Cincinnati and the U.S. Open. Back half of the year was an absolute win. For Belinda Bencic, and then of course you look at the other quarterfinalists at last week's event in Chicago. It was a great run for Danielle Collins before getting knocked out 7-6 in the third by Vondrusova. I talk about it with Kanyev on the GSP. I think Collins is a dark horse contender to win Indian Wells. And then what a week, obviously, for my Hantama. First 500 quarterfinal for her in her career. You look for Hantama, the 22-year-old from Japan, up to a new career high of number 156. That's exactly where you want to be when you're 22 years old. But of course, that was your action over in Chicago. There was another WTA-level event happening last weekend in Nur Sultan. We almost saw a hometown champion. And I have to say, if you haven't Go watch, at a minimum, the highlights of the final between Ali Van Utvink, uh, who ends up earning the title in three sets over hometown, uh, hometown, I suppose, home countrywoman Yulia Putensiva, uh, 1-6-6-4-6-3 in the final was such a fun contrast of style. And worth mentioning, they played this 250 event on the exact same court that they played the men's event on last week. And it's just, again, why do I bring that up? Slowest court in all of tennis. You can't convince me there's a slower hard court out there than the indoor hard court of Nur Sultan. And as such, it just made for such a fascinating contrast of style. Of course, Van Uvenk, known for her success moving forward as much as her success uh, and as a doubles player, as much as her success as a singles player, who, by the way, Van Uvenk, 5-0 and 0 
in her career in WTA finals. This was her fifth title. Helps her stay inside the top 100, certainly, and she was in jeopardy of falling out uh, of that metric by the end of this season. But look, she just kept attacking throughout the course of this match, and it didn't matter that Putenseva seemed to find every answer she was looking for throughout the course of that first set, every passing shot, every short angle, just everything was landing for her. And the home crowd was eating it up, and she was pumping up the crowd after every point, seemingly, and every after every long rally, and after every passing shot on the run that she made, she was looking for noise from the crowd. She was looking to embrace that atmosphere, and they provided noise for her. They provided energy, and as such, she just came out to a roaring start. That said, it's just going to be really hard for anyone to sustain that sort of defensive tennis over the course of of two and a half hours. And for Van Oofeng, she was so smart about just continuing to attack. And what was so interesting for me is watching Putenseva continue to attack the backhand for Ali Van Oofeng. And it just, it didn't work. Like, Ali was hitting through that ball so well. She's so rock solid off of that wing. And I really enjoyed watching her backhand, just the fluidity of it, how condensed the backswing is, her ability to guide that ball cross-court down the line and not suffer any pace regardless of the direction she's going, her willingness to move forward. She just continued to force Putenseva to hit these incredible passing shots in the outer third, and while Putenseva was able to track a lot of things down, and if Fenufeng didn't hit a winning volley, Putenseva got a look, uh, Putenseva, excuse me, got a look at a second passing shot and had a lot of success with those second passing shots, but Again, it was the relentless pressure of Ali Van Bank moving forward, just the amount of high forehand volleys she seemed to hit, well-placed for winners, drop volleys, just all of it. She had the weapons. She made the most. She showed the patience needed to wait for her opportunity to move forward. And then when she was at the net, she took care of business. You look for her, as I mentioned, fifth WTA title of her career. You look for her now with this result in the live ranking. She's now comfortably inside the top 100. She's back, I believe. You look Look for her in the live rankings. Let's see. Where is she currently? Uh, I believe she's sitting now at number 55 uh, in the live rankings. Of course, there's still some Indian Wells points to come off for other players, but you look for her 84th in the points race. Again, she needed that result to sort of sustain her ranking moving forward because you look uh, for her, and by the way, uh, 19 and 15 now in her last 52 weeks. But of course, you date back to the 2019 Indian Wells, I believe for her. Yeah, made round of 64 there. I mean, Indian a first-round win at Masters points when you're in the 50s and that 50 to 100 range, that's a significant amount of the points uh, that'll come off the record. So for her to get this victory, also, you know, defend a title, she won in Tashkent at the end of 2019 because those points still coming off the board. It's a much-needed result for the 27-year-old, and now she will stay in the top 100. Again, you look for her 19-15 and 15 overall on the season. Has really turned things around since winning that 100K event in Nottingham on the grass courts and, you know, makes round of 16 in Tokyo, qualifies in Montreal, round of 16 in Chicago. She, you know, tough draws at the U.S. Open in Luxembourg, losing to Bedos and Vandrusova in her first match, but again, Good week for her. Number two seed beat everyone she was supposed to beat and then overcame a set deficit to earn the title in the end. Of course, for Putenseva, 
destroyed a racket at the end of the match, and you can understand why the opportunity to play in your home country, it was a maiden event. You know, it would have been just so, you can understand how special that would have been for the 26-year-old to win that title uh, in its first try, obviously, at this point of the season, and you look for her on the year now, I believe. That's her second final of the season. She did win a title over in Budapest earlier this year, and you look for her overall now here in 2021, Putenseva, 30-23 overall wasn't the best year for her at Grand Slams round of 32 at the Australian Open uh her best result at any of the four but again 30 and 23 it's going to keep you inside the top 15 you look for her now in the live rankings potensive uh, a 43rd overall you look for her in terms of the points race she currently sits at number 38 yeah, it feels about right uh, for her. Just, again, so physically fit, can throw so many different weapons. Just makes you earn everything. Uh, but ultimately, she, again, falls a bit short to Van Uvink. In the final, of course, was a good week for Rebecca Pedersen. She ends up making semifinal run win over Serena Diaz. Three-set win for her in impressive fashion in the quarterfinal. Over Anastasia Padapova, you had great one for young Romanian Jacqueline Christian, uh, who makes her first quarterfinal, I believe, at the two, or semifinal at the 250 level and of course you look one of a couple of young Romanians on the rise Elena Gabriela Russa up to a new career high of number 83 you look uh, for Jacqueline Christine the 23 year old Romanian up to new career high number 108 in the live rankings uh, so a fun weekend of action in North Sultan of course that uh, event ended up ending I believe on Saturday they were a day ahead of everyone of course part of that is time zones but I believe they also just literally were a day ahead but that's where things stand on yes, uh, in terms of last weekend's WTA championship action. Again, we get into Chicago a bit more and where things stand in the race to the year-end finals in Tuesday's Great Shot podcast with David Kane. But with that in mind, let's move over now, talk about the men's action we saw on the week. Let's start in San Diego. I think we can forever dispel with the myth that Kasparud is simply just a clay court specialist. You look for Kasparud was exceptional. All week long, straight set wins over Murray, Sinego, and then the 0-2 beatdown he put on Cam Nori in the final. I mean, three-set win for him over Grigor Dimitrov in the semifinals as well. That was extraordinarily physical and saw Grigor playing some of his best tennis. I mean, you look for Kasparud. He is one of, I believe, it's seven players. Yeah, no, no, excuse me. One of four players to rank top 15 in both holds and break percentage this season. It's Medvedev and Djokovic who are in the top 10 club. It's Rude and Zverev who are in the top 15 club. And you look for Kasper Rude now on the season, 45-13 and 13 overall. Obviously, career high for him, 85.9% hold percentage, 28.4% break percentage. But again, he's won 80% of his matches here over the last 52 weeks, or excuse me, over the course of the season. Excuse me, it's 44-12. and 12. That's what I was saying. That number didn't look right. That was including his last 52 weeks. If we're talking strictly 2021 results, uh, he is indeed 44-12. and 12. That's an 80% win percentage, folks. And just, you know, you look at it by splits, of course, he happens to have won five ATP 250 titles this year, but that five titles is the single highest amount of titles of any player on the ATP Tour this year. And I know some some of them, you know, some of those 250s, the three post Wimbledon did feel a little cupcakey. But you look at his record by opponent breakdown again against non-top 50 opponents, he's 26 and four against the top 50, 
eighteen and eight overall against the top twenty. He's seven and six, and he's got you know multiple wins over Diego uh, over Diego Schwartzman. One on clay, one on hard courts. He's beaten Carreno Busta on a clay court. He's beaten Tsitsipas on a clay court. FAA on a clay court. He you know got a win over Shapovalov as well. Uh, you look for him against top ten opponents. Now he's two and six, but of course overall forty four and twelve. Half of his losses have come against top ten opponents. That speaks to the quality Kasparud has shown week in, week out. And of course, it is worth mentioning for him in tour level matches overall throughout the course of his career. Uh, you look for him heading into this uh, year. Or excuse me, he's twenty five and twenty nine in his career in ATP level hardcourt matches. He's fourteen and five here this season. So he was what eleven and I believe four, uh, eleven and twenty four. Excuse me, coming into the year now fourteen and five here this season. It was always just a matter of sample size because you can understand why his game works so well across surfaces. A the angle he cr- creates with his serve, the kick on the ad side, and just you know the pace into your body on the deuce. He can hit the slice out wide as well. Can hit all of the spots with extraordinary precision. And then that forehand's just lethal. His ability to find it in so many different positions on the court, you know, and his ability to go inside out, inside out, inside out, to open up the inside in. His ability and his discipline with those patterns as well. His ability to incorporate the backhand slice, and I thought he did an extraordinarily good job of doing that against Grigor Dimitrov in the semifinals. But, you know, in particular, I thought he was a little tentative to start the match, and he goes down an early break to love. But then, you know, again, just matched that physicality and you know was willing to be patient with Grigor and continue to fire into that backhand corner until he was absolutely certain he could attack the open court space with precision and then of course you know he got Grigor to start second guessing himself he started going behind Grigor Dimitrov and just you know throwing in all of these different shots and he's comfortable moving forward and as I mentioned comfortable playing slice comfortable incorporating drop shot and I think that forehand is a legitimate weapon. Just, the again, the depth he's able to create, the spin he's able to generate on that ball. I've said it before. I'll say it again. It's the mortal righty version of Rafael Nadal. Casper Ruud, extraordinarily effective throughout his run in San Diego. And just, you know, we broke Cam Nori down. It was just, A, his ability to match Nori's physicality. And it's worth noting, Nori was drained after the most physical of three-set matches against Grigor Dimitrov in the semifinals. Uh, against, excuse me, Andre Rublev in the semifinals. But hey, so was Kasper Ruud. It's not like that three-set match, the later of the two matches against Grigor Dimitrov, was a walk in the park. No, it was a three-set, two-and-a-half-hour battle. And just, you know, Ruud's ability to respond the next day. And just, it felt like physically the pressure he was putting on Nori from the get-go. And just, again, what he's able to do in the outer thirds. His ability to move the ball into the corners of the court. His ability to beat you to the spot and, you know, attack you forehand down the line by taking that ball early and on the rise. And then his comfort level moving forward. There's just a lot to love about the game of Casper Ruud and you look for him overall here on the season I mentioned it for Ruud the record uh, 44 and 12 overall on the year you look for him now in terms of in the ATP rankings and in the points race I mean Casper Ruud's ready to rock and roll as he continues to progress uh, across the board you look for him I believe he's currently 10th in the live rankings of course he's never played in Indian Wells main draw in his career and that feels like a little fascinating subplot is he the highest ranked player maybe ever to be making his Indian Wells debut I don't know but he's currently number nine now in the live rankings you look for Casper 
Jasper Ruud. He's moved up to seventh in the ATP race. Of course, technically eighth, but we know Rafa's not going to be playing. He's moved up to seventh, has about a 150-point lead, not about, that's exactly what it is, over eighth place, Hubi Hercots has a 420-point lead over ninth place, Yannick Sinner, that number gets to a 605-point lead over FAA. Now, not only is Indian Wells still on the board, you've also got the Paris Masters still on the board for the men. So it's not a guaranteed for Kasparu the way it really is for Andre Rublev and the way it really is for Matteo Berrettini, who are up over 1,000 points on even Kasparu. But he's sitting pretty. And you consider the fact quarterfinals for him in Montreal, quarterfinals for him in Cincinnati, didn't make a second week of a slam, and yet he's been the best player. Uh, week in, week out at the 250 level, right? He's played the most events, but he's dominated those events that he's played. And, you know, a round of 16 for him at Indian Wells, a round of 16 for him at Paris, or holding seed and doing better than that, getting to the quarterfinals, he's going to make the year-end finals. He's in a very comfortable position to do so. You know, if he misses it, it's on him. It means he played extraordinarily poorly down the home stretch, Or a guy like Sinner, a guy on FAA just has caught fire and, you know, wins Indian Wells and wins Paris or makes a semifinal at one and wins the other. Just means one of those young guys made a jump because those are really the guys who are left to catch him. But I think Casper Ruud's sitting pretty and it's not going to shock me at all to see the 23, uh, soon to be 23 year old, now currently 22, but soon to be 23 year old Norwegian make and qualify for the year in finals. Quite frankly, he belongs there. You know who belongs in the top 20 of the ATP rankings? Cam freaking Nori, and who's currently number 28 in the rankings. But of course, this is his his breakout season on the ATP Tour. The 26-year-old now, 48 and 23 in his last 52 weeks, 45 and 20 here on the season. He's winning 69% of his matches. He's top 10 in break percentage with a 28.1%. He's made nine different quarterfinals on the season on clay courts, hard courts, grass courts, indoors, outdoors, you name it, he's done it. He's made six different semifinals, won his first title, made five different finals on the season. Uh, Again, there's a reason you look at the advanced metrics right now. They love themselves from Cam Norrie. Cam Norrie, 15th in 2021 specific ELO, 14th in overall ELO. You look for Cam Norrie now in the points race. He has elevated himself all the way up to 14th there. Again, that 28 in the ranking, I think, is a little low. He's been a top 20 player. He's done it across surfaces. He's done it at the biggest events. Cam Norrie's a stud. I mean, just again, former college number one for while an All-American at TCU. He he has proven he belongs and just... It's very Brooksby-ish in just the death by high percentage tennis. He's going to make a ton of first serves over the course of the match, generally 68 to 70% of them. He's going to mix up his spots so well. His slice serve out wide as a lefty on the ad side should be taught at clinics for years to come. And just his ability to mix up that spot now and attack the tee, which is something he talked about in his post-match presser when I asked him about his development in serve. And unfortunately, we just don't have the audio clip for all of you listeners. But, you know, that's something he discussed about. It's his improvement, uh, hitting that spot as well, and just you know his efficiency with his plus one ball, and just how many returns he puts in play. He's got to be a tour leader, and just 
putting returns in play, and I wish I had that metric available for you. I do not, but you know, tell me the weakness. What's the weakness for Nori? Yeah, he doesn't create that well with his backhand. Well, you saw in that Andre Rublev match in the semifinals when Rublev was providing the depth and the spin for Nori attacking with his forehand to that Nori lefty backhand corner. Nori had no problem guiding that ball both cross-court and down the line, absorbing and redirecting the pace of Andre Rublev, attacking the open space both cross-court and down the line with that backhand when the plus-one ball presented itself him with an opportunity to do so yeah I mean you know again his plus one forehand he moves it so well around the court he's a comfortable volleyer fit as a (laughs) fiddle and I don't say that lightly and I apologize for swearing but his progression as an athlete here this season just again it cannot be understated Cam Norrie has been exceptional this season deserves all the accolades that are going to come his way I believe I see a nice little Uniqlo on his chest now. Wonder what that deal is. Wonder if that's a byproduct of, again, the success he has had over the past 52 month, uh, fifty-two weeks. Cam Norrie, breakout, one of the breakout stars, maybe the most improved player of 2021, certainly on the shortlist for that discussion. But those were your finalists. I thought Rublev, again, what was so impressive about Norrie in the semifinals was that Rublev played really, really well, particularly in that first set, was just lights out, was his best Delpo impression. Every forehand he got was either struck for a winner or, or was struck with the intention of creating a second forehand winner, was hitting his backhand so well. He's introduced hitting the short angle backhand to open up some space for himself to give him some time to run around and hit the inside out or inside in forehand. And just that combo, short angle backhand, guaranteed forehand either to the open space or behind you it's deadly for Andre Rublev such an effective shot and again he knows opponents are going to be attacking his backhand I think he's gotten a lot better hitting that ball out of corners and just driving that ball changing up his locations returning off of that wing but the best adjustment Cam Norrie made in that semifinal match was that he didn't just target the backhand he started mixing up his spots and I thought what Rublev did so well in that first set is he knew exactly what Norrie was trying to do Norrie was too tentative Norrie was camping out too much on the ad side of the court with his shots, but then Cam Norrie started switching his location, started taking obvious plus one opportunities to the Andre Rublev forehand and saying, hey, I dare you to beat me with that shot, with a passing shot on the run when I've got perfect positioning on you. And there were times when Rublev still beat him, but the perfect positioning, the high percentage play ended up winning out. And, you know, he was comfortable hitting his backhand cross-court exchanging Nori backhand to Rublev forehand rallies and you know again Nori made that match so extraordinarily physical he withstood the strike of Rublev what was so impressive is Nori beat an in-form Andre Rublev it's not like Andre played poorly Andre maybe didn't serve his best in that match and you look at the number he only made 55% of his first serves that's the low-hanging fruit but look, Nori fought off eight of nine break points in that match. That was, again, Cam Nori won the match. Andre Rublev didn't lose it. That was a super exciting semifinal. Then so was Rude Dimitrov. And this is the best Grigors looked probably in 2021. And you look for him, three-set win over Karatsev in the quarterfinals was the benefit of a lucky, beneficiary of a lucky loser in the round of 16, de- destroyed San Diego's Austin Holmgren. And I say that lovingly, one and one. Three-set win for him over Fucevic in the round of 32 as well. I thought Dimitrov was excellent all week long, but again, you have to give credit uh, to Kasparud for just out 
physically him that match and just Dimitrov didn't have an easy enough weapon to make life easy enough for himself during the course of that match but he also could have absolutely won it that was just a gladiator affair super super fun semi-final round and then I may have talked about the quarterfinals a little bit but in case I didn't you know Rublev over Schwartzman Andre just too much firepower and just seemed to solve the Schwartzman riddle uh, after playing him a week earlier uh, in David uh, in Labor Cup excuse me Kasparu just was able to withstand the first strike of Lorenzo Sinego and just made life miserable for Sinego, targeting that backhand, forcing him to hit only on the run forehands. Nori absolutely broke down. Denis Shapovalov just kept hitting spot after spot after spot. And then again, was a delightful track meet between Dimitrov and Karatsev, a display of shot making. Super fun event in San Diego was so fun watching the crowd uh, just all weekend long continue to turn out for an ATP 250 level event and you know again you can't put a price tag on that I think San Diego is here to stay I think they are going to find a spot on the ATP calendar was a fantastically well run event and shout out to Ryan Redondo the entire San Diego team uh, for all they did of course again if you want to hear from Rublev from Casper Rude you can hop on over to our Cracked Interviews podcast check them out on the latest from the presser segment Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. But that was your action over in San Diego. I suppose it is just worth mentioning. You look at the live rankings now. Uh, you look at the race uh, to the year-end finals. Rublev, as I mentioned, seems to have clinched his spot. Kasparud, pretty damn close to clinching as well. Rublev up to six in the live rankings. Kasparud currently at number nine. You look at the ELO ratings. Kasparud sixth in terms of 2021 specific ELO rating. Andre Rublev currently 11th. You look in terms of overall ELO for the two players. Andre Rublev currently eighth. Eighth, Kasparud currently ninth. I think Kasparud has in, entered in that conversation. I think he's getting closer. We need to see it at the slams, of course, but week in, week out, I mean, he's been dominant at the 250s, and I think he is getting closer to that Berrettini Rublev tier. Not quite, you know, Sinner FAA right there. He's not quite in the key three tier. He's not quite at the level to win slams right now that I think Dimitri, uh, that I think, excuse me, Medvedev, Zverev, and Tsitsipas are all at. But he's getting closer. And again, coming into 2022, one of the biggest storylines, will Kasper Ruud make his first second week at a Grand Slam? He certainly should. I think we're all circling the French Open as the slam. He could absolutely needs to do it at, but I think he very well could do it in uh, at the Australian Open to kick off the year. Great run for Kasper Ruud again. Fifth ATP title for him on the season, uh, this time on the hard courts of San Diego. But that was your action over there, of course, over in Sofia. We got to see Yannick Sinner defend a title for the first time in his career, and for the Sin Man, I mean, was excellent all week long. In the final, earns a straight set victory, 3-4 and four, over Gael Monfils. You look for Yannick Sinner, he didn't drop a set on his way to the title, wins over Gerasimov in inform James Duckworth, inform Philip Krajinovic, and then again in the final against Gael Monfils. What was so notable was how difficult it was for any of those players to hurt Sinner throughout the course of his matches. His movement continues to get better and better, and just, you know, again, 
he's 20 years old. It's just like the weaknesses continue to minimize his ability to hit with depth through uh, the court on his backhand wing, his ability to turn any forehand into a winner at any point in the match. It's just... It's really tough to match up with, and he's getting more and more comfortable moving forward, it feels like, with every match he plays. And he is a good volleyer. He knows where to go, what to do, which is half the battle. But, of course, he also is comfortable, you know, just, I think, playing the short angles and, you know, hitting from his power out of the corners is just exceptional. And that's indicative of his hand skills and just, you know, Gael Monfils, the guy who wants to play with his food. Gael Monfils is the sort of guy who uh, definitely likes to, you know, extend a rally maybe one or two shots more than he needs to. And just, you can't do that against Yannick Sinner because if you give him an extra forehand or an extra sitter, he's going to make you play. And what was so impressive for Sinner in this match was how patient he was, how willing he was to play. 10, 15, 20-shot rallies. Again, he was exceptional. From start to finish, was clearly the best player in the field. Takes care of business as well. You look for Sinner, as I mentioned. He's now put himself in strike range to make the year-end finals. And of course, Yannick Sinner could play the next-gen finals, an event he's already won if he wants to. But you look for Sinner now up to a new career high of number 14 in the live rankings. He's ninth in the race. Trails Hoopy Hercots by 275 points. Now, I will say, with both Paris and Indian Wells on the board, 275, uh, 270, excuse me, points, that's not enough. That's not a big enough margin to feel comfortable if you're Hoopy Hercots. Yannick Sinner is on the trot. You look for him now overall on the season. Sinner, uh, career highs for him, obviously, in hold and break percentage, but he's now 37-17 and 17 overall on the year. Holding serve 80.1% of the time. Breaking serve 25.1% of the time. Again, if there's a top 30 club, it would feature about 15 players. He would be one of them. That hold percentage is what keeps him back. He's at 30th right now amongst top 50 players, but that is a career high number for him in terms of hold percentage over the last 52 weeks, and you see the continued improvement on serve, the firepower so glaring, and again, what's the weakness? What do you do to break down Yannick Sinner? You attack the backhand rigorously, like you have a big enough first serve to give yourself plus one opportunities? Well, you can say that's a way to attack any opponent ever and just the margins are so thin when you play Sinner because he puts so much pressure on you from the start, and then he's so disciplined in the way he puts that pressure on you as well. Again, was the best player from start to finish, and I talk about him extensively in our Indian Wells preview, so I'll leave that there in terms of uh, his weekend, of course, for Gael Monfils. He continues his streak of seasons with ATP Tour-level finals. You look for him uh, overall now dating back. I believe he has made one final in every season dating back to 2005 that's ridiculous. Yeah, I'm looking across the board. One in every season since 2005. I believe that trails only Roger Federer as the longest streak in ATP Tour history. If I would have told you of the core four, Monfils, Songa, Simone, and Richard Gasquet. If I'd have told you Monfils would be the last one standing back in 2008, 2009, 2010, you would have said no way, no chance. And yet, that's where we find ourselves. Again, a decade and a half of finals for Gael Monfils, 35 years old, starting to play such better tennis down the home stretch here in 2021. You look for him since, I believe, uh, the start, or since actually, really, the, the round to point to is since his wedding, since he got married, because that really was uh, the key, I suppose, uh, inflection point in his career. But you look for him, he's 13 and 15 in 2021. However, since the start of the hardcourt swing, you know, quarterfinals for him in Canada, round of 16 in Cincinnati. 
Cincinnati. Round of 32 at the U.S. Open where he happened to lose to the Sin Man in five sets. Semifinals in, uh, at the Moselle Open, he loses to Crano Busta five and six. Now finals of Sofia where he loses three and four. Been a very stabilizing couple of weeks for Gael Monfils in the rankings. You look for him now in the live rankings. He stabilized at number 18. You look for him in the points race. A little bit lower than that for him by that metric. You look for Gael. He's actually uh, currently, let's see, Gael Monfils 55th in the points race, but Look, the semifinal final run he's made here to end the season with Indian Wells and Paris on the board as well to just to get himself in the top 50, keep himself in the Masters range, maybe not even seated at slams, but in that range. I mean, I do think that's where Guy Monfils belongs right now. Just again, we didn't see the consistency at the start of the season, but if we see this translate to the start of 2022, no question in my mind, he'll be comfortably inside the top 50, probably still seated at Grand Slams as well. But again, that, uh, that was your final over in Sofia. You look at the semifinals, other results we saw was a good run for Filip Krajinovic to make the semifinals. Got wins over Matrizek in three sets. Got a win over Laszlo Jure. Got a win, I believe, in his first round match as well over Alexander Lazarov. Took advantage of a very opportunistic draw. Shout out to Marcos Giron. I believe this was his uh, a big, much-needed semifinal for him. He's now at a new career high, I believe, number 55 in the ATP rankings. And Again, going to get to set his own schedule in 2022 as a 28-year-old. That's all you can ask for at this point of his career. Uh, he was excellent all week long, dominated the Australians, wins over Demonauer, wins over Millman, uh, win for him in round number one over Munar as well. It was a really fun week of playing. Again, the Duck uh, making quarterfinals, Millman in the quarterfinals. He lost, I believe he was the champion at last year's uh, event, or no, excuse me. Sinner was the champion, but he lost Noor Sultan championship points the week before, so good quarterfinal for him to follow up. Good run for Lucky Loser Matrizak. Good run for Gianluca Magger, uh, Madger, excuse me, as well to make the quarterfinals. But that was your action over in Sofia. I do want to run through the challenger results real quick, but of course, as always, to hear extensive ATP Challenger coverage. Hop on over to our Great Shot podcast feed where every Monday, Damian Kust, Jakob Babro recap all of the action just to rapid fire through. Was an incredible week for Henry Laxon. He beat Benjamin Bonzi. He beat Yuri Vesely. He beat Dennis Novak in three sets to earn the title in Orleans. Was a loaded draw in Orleans, France. You had Richard Gasquet, Holger Rune, Quarantine Moutet, Benjamin Bolzi, Arthur Rindernesh, Ugo Umber, all in the field. It's really, really fun for a late September challenger. But again, shout out to Laxon. Shout out to top seed Stefano Trevaglia. He earns the title, gets a three-set win over eighth seed Samit Nagal, and then a six-and-two win in the final over the cock, Tanasi Kokonakis, another great final run for Kokonakis. And you look for him with all of his success at the challenger level, the 25-year-old, up to number 174 in the live rankings. You look for him, though, in terms of the points race, Kokonakis, 123. Again, once the points reset and once everything gets back to even, he will have a chance to make another top 100 push at the start of next season, just given all of the injuries he sustained throughout the course of his career. That's such a fantastic story. Tennis is a better place when we have a healthy Tenasi Kokonakis. So another run for a challenge, to a challenger final for Kokonakis. You actually look, I'm curious because I, I haven't looked this up recently, for Kokonakis here this season, 33-19. 55, uh, 52 total matches. That's a win. 
given all the injuries he sustained throughout the course of his career. So a good final run for the cock on the clay of Romania. Of course, you head on over to Lima uh, this past week was a challenger title run, uh, I believe, for, uh, excuse me, Hugo Delian, the number five seed, a win over young Argentinian Camilo Carabelli, 6-3-7-5, and it, uh, you know, was a good run for Delian, wins over kicker Nicholas and Carabelli uh, on his way to the final, another good run for the young Argentinian, by the way, Carabelli, who you look now in the live rankings, I believe he is also at a new career high of number 210, is uh, the 22-year-old uh, Argentinian, so another good run for him to make the final over in Lima, in Lisbon. Uh, ultimately, I believe in the end, it was uh, Dimitri Popko earning the first challenger title of his career over Andre Pellegrino, 6-2-6-4. Popko got a win over Gaston in the semifinals for Pellegrino. It was a straight set win, uh, a, a retirement victory, excuse me, over um, Andre Martin. In the end, I do have to give a shout-out to Nikola Miljevic, who comes from a final run the week prior uh, to make the quarterfinals here this week as well. He's been exceptional this week, uh, this year, all season long at the challenger level, particularly on the clay court events. But again, I know that's a tournament Damien and Jakob talk about extensively. I also know they talk extensively about the run of Talon Greekspor, the number two seed, earning a three-set victory over top seed Roberto Carbeas Benia in the final of the challenger over in Spain. Those were your five challenger results. Of course, we did have some fun ITFs that we kept our eye on all last week, just to let you guys know how those played out. We'll start on the women's side. There was the 60K event over in Berkeley. Um, in the end, again, was super, super fun week of results. In the end, I believe in the final, you had Usue Arcanada. Uh, I believe, who spent a couple years at Florida. She earns a 6-1-6-3 victory over Marcella Zacharias. You look uh, for Arcanada. Again, big win for her uh, in her career. And with this victory at the 60K, I believe she moves back up to number 183 in the live rankings, does the 22-year-old, who's been ranked as high as number 130 in the world, uh, has struggled with her results, you know, with some consistency issues. So again, this was a big result for her at the 60K, of course. It was great to see NCAA champ Emma Navarro reach the semi uh, quarterfinals, uh, you know, plays a really tough three-set match against Zacharias before ultimately falling short. was a good week for Luisa Chirico as well. She's dealt with so many different injuries throughout the course of her career, but the former top 100 player makes the quarterfinals before getting knocked out by seven-seed Mayo Hibby, of course, again for Arcanada. Uh, fantastic to see her ultimately end up in title town at the 15K over in Lubbock. It was former NC State standout Adriana Riemi making it back-to-back title weeks for the Wolfpack alum Riemi. In the end, a 7-6-6-1 win over Florida's McCartney Kessler. In the final, you look for Kessler. Impressive wins all week long in the semifinals with straight sets over Isiova. Uh, in the quarterfinals, I believe a win over Sadieva uh, to reach that final. And, you know, again, you look for uh, across the board. There were a ton of fun uh, college performances all week long for Riemi. A three-set win the quarterfinals 7-6 in the third over Liz Horde in the semifinals she had another 7-6 in the 
third victory over the two-seed Sawang Kyo. Kyo. I'm going to butcher that. Either way, point being 2-7-6 in the third victories on the way to your final. You'll love to see that run uh, for the former Wolfpack star. And you look for Riemi now, I believe, with this victory up to number 835 in the live rankings for the 23-year-old. She's hovering, uh, that's, I believe, 23 spots behind her career high. But again, she's playing another uh, event this week over in Reading. That was your action on the ITF women's side. On the men's side, you had another 15K uh, in Lubbock uh, for them. You look at your eventual champion uh, in the end, I believe. Leave. It was Keegan Smith, best story in tennis. And we're going to have him on the Cracked Interviews podcast this week, but you look for Keegan Smith. You know, six months ago, we weren't sure if he was ever going to be able to pick up a racket again, and it was written about by uh, the UCLA paper, student paper, I believe, but sustained a life-threatening skateboarding injury and, you know, again, was in the ICU for multiple days, just unclear, uh, you know, what degree of recovery he was going to have, and now earns multiple three-set victories early in the tournament, gets a 5-2 and two win over Cannon Kingsley in the final. You look for him in the semis, was a three-set win over Henry Patton. You look for him, again, I believe it was the second round right away he was pushed, three-set win over Oziotis, and you look for him in the first round as well for Keegan Smith. Uh, just Or, excuse me, just all week along he was pushed, but... You know, again, the big serve, big forehand. When he's playing on his front foot, playing his best tennis, just good luck keeping up with that serve. Uber talent has Keegan Smith. No one's ever denied the talent. And, you know, again, that's a fantastic week for him. A great week for Kingsley, who I'm going to try and get on the podcast this week as well, just to talk about his fall, the success he's had uh, as well. Of course, he's part of our Project Elite uh, program moving forward. But that was a really fun final. And you look for Kingsley. It was a 2-3 and three win for him over Sven Law of Baylor was a three-set win for him over Charlie Broom, former Baylor standout in the quarterfinals as well. So good result for Kingsley. Great result, obviously, for your eventual champion, Keegan Smith. And I do just got to give a shout-out to the champion over in Cancun. You look uh, in the end, in the main draw, your winner of the 15K in Cancun. Former Miami standout number four seed Christian Langma, who gets a good win over former Northwestern star Strong Kirkheimer in the semifinals, gets a win over Juan Sebastian Gomez, 3-3 three and three in the final. Always got to give a shout-out to our former ITA stars, Christian Langmo. His days coming in Miami, that was straight. I think he's my generation. I'm pretty sure he and I are very similar uh, in age. But again, uh, that was your ITF action, and that's where things stand. After championship weekend was really, really exciting. Again, we look at it. Uh, Indian Wells gets started on Wednesday. We've got a bunch of challengers in the meantime. I'll break down all of that action on tomorrow's mini break podcast, of course. Indian Wells preview content coming all week week long on the Great Shot podcast feed. Also going to have Matt and Chris make their return. It's not our, we're not starting our college tennis preview content. Don't get crazy, but we've had so much exciting news uh, over the past few weeks. Had to bring them on to get their takes and then you know, again, just kind of, I suppose, get our feet wet as we do prepare for all of that college tennis preview content. But you already know all the content available at the website, crackrackets.com. Like, rate, subscribe, review to this show, The Great Shot Podcast, Crack Interviews Podcast, and all of our Crack Rackets content. If you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Crack Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at Great Shot Pod. A shout out, as always, to our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westhoff, for the f- 
of any job they do day in, day out. Shout out as well to our friends over at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all that said, for Super Producers Figner and Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.